If anybody wants to see that video in its entirety, which we saw the video in its entirety, it just kind of goes into some credits for Ellerslie Church. Um, you can go to Facebook, Whitehall Assembly. It's posted on our um, Facebook page. And if you want to watch it again and, and study the different uh, uh, names of God and different descriptions that he was given in that video, it has the scriptural references right underneath it. So it's something I actually listen to probably weekly just because it kind of uh, gives me perspective of who God is and, and everything. And I think it's a, a good thing to do, keep God in all of his perspective. We're going to do that today as we begin a new series in which we study some of the names of God and some of them that you saw in that video. And today we are beginning with God's name Elohim. Theologians have found at least 365 ways that God is referred to in the Bible. Ranging from names like Jehovah Rapha, which means God is our healer, to Jehovah Jireh, which means God is our provider, or Yahweh Royai, which God is our shepherd. And we're going to spend the next few months looking at some of these names. We're not going to look at all 365 because that would take seven years, according to my calculations. And I think you guys would be a little bored with that by then. But um, we're going to look through several of them and some of the, several of them that are the most important to us as Christians. And the reason I want to spend time exploring these names is so that we can see God from different views and see all of his different sides. God is such an immense being that, we can only, that if we only know him as our shepherd, for example, we see him only from that side and we don't also see that he is also our provider. If we see God as a healer and not also as a judge, that can be dangerous to our souls. And so we're going to spend this time in these next couple of months gazing at him in all of his attributes and hopefully see him better for who he really is instead of who we might believe him to be. We have to first establish an important principle, though, that when we talk about names within the Bible. In the Bible, it's difficult to stress how much importance was placed on a person's name. You see names like Jacob, for example. Jacob was an actual description of who he was. He was named Jacob because he was a trickster, because he was a deceiver. That is why God had to go and change his name from trickster and deceiver to Israel, which means prince of God. On the other hand, you also see people like Joshua, whose name meant savior, or meant that God saves. And he used that name on a man who brought salvation and victory to the people of Israel. In fact, Jesus' name is Joshua in Hebrew. You saw him called up there, Yeshua. That's the Greek way of saying Jesus. But his real name in Hebrew would have been Joshua. In other words, God saves. So when you consider the importance the Bible places on a person's name as a description of who they are, the importance of us taking this time to learn about the names of God should become very apparent to us because they are descriptions of who God is and his character that we should be seeing as we look at him. Today we start off in Genesis, in the beginning. We're going to look at the Bible's first sentence and study the Hebrew word that is used for the English word God. In the Old Testament, Elohim. Elohim is used over 2,500 times to refer to God in the Old Testament. And it is simply translated as that, God. And we're going to read about it in the first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. And Father God, as we launch into this new series of messages, I ask, Father, that you become crystal clear of who you actually are. As we look upon your different attributes, as we look upon your different characteristics, I ask, Father, that you would help us to see you in all of your glory, that you would help us to see you for who you really are, and not just focus on one thing or another, but see you as a great God that encompasses such a wide variety of characteristics that all we can do is bow and worship that you are such an immense being, that you are all of these things. Father God, enable us to be able to do that in these next several weeks. And enable us to do it this morning as we deal with your name, Elohim. Father God, we ask this in your name. Amen. We know that the Bible treats the fact that God is. It doesn't try to explain it away. And the fact that God is was portrayed within that first sentence of Scripture. So let's look at what the Hebrew name Elohim means. Elohim is actually kind of a compound word within the Hebrew language. The base word is El. El simply means God. Elohim is a word that brings out the wholeness of God. It is actually a plural form of El. Now, strictly speaking, if you were to translate the Hebrew directly without taking into consideration any of the linguistics and any of the cultural ideas of the way that they understood it, you would translate Genesis 1.1 as, in the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. However, it is not the way that the Hebrew language and the Hebrews read this. When when the Hebrews use a plural form of a word to describe a person, its meaning was to bring out that person's magnificence or bring out that person's awesomeness or, or to expound upon that person's power. So when they referred to somebody like that within the plural sense was to expand his worth and not necessarily to describe more than one. And couple with, you couple with this with the fact that Elohim is a word that's described God in Hebrews 6.4. If you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know that Hebrews 6.4 is the Shema. It's a Jewish statement of faith. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Or Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. It would be how you would say it in in Hebrew. And that's all the Hebrew I know. So if that's impressed you, praise God. And I read somewhere that the Shema points to the singleness of the Godhead that is plural in its administration. And in other words, Genesis 1.1 is the first indication that we as Christians know that God exists in more than one person. It points to his triune nature and that he is a triune God. So when people try to tell you that the Trinity is not in the Bible, all you have to do is point them right here. Say, well, if God is not a plural form of a God, then why didn't the Hebrews write it down as El instead of Elohim? Why didn't they do that if God is not at least two persons? We know him as three. And I know that the idea of a trinity 
is enough to make your mind kind of explode. And, and it's, it's a confusing doctrine. But the idea is there. And someday I'll try to preach on this. But the evidence of it is, um, starts right there in Genesis. And that brings us to our second point. Genesis 1.1 explains that Elohim is eternally self-existent. As I said in the beginning, the Bible does not go and try to prove the existence of God. It just assumes it. It assumes that any sane, rational, logical person can look at a creation and say, that has to have a creator. So it assumes that a person is going to look around them and say, this is, there is no way that millions of years plus chance plus a pile of goo could make all of this happen. And there's a popular notion among the quote-unquote educated that the idea of God is simply man's creation to simplify life or to explain what we can't explain through science yet. And it is kind of correct to the point. How many people here have, have been um, somewhere like Yellowstone Park? Anybody been to Yellowstone? I've been to Yellowstone. Anybody seen the, the Rocky Mountains or even the Appalachian Mountains? How many people here have just looked up, being in a rural area away from the city lights, looked up and see the grandeur of the sky? You don't see that in Kenosha where we came from. You say maybe the brightest stars and that's about it. I mean, you'd have to go way, way, way out in the county, even past Kenosha County, to see what you see here because of the city lights. And we look up and we see the stunning display of God's power. We see the stunning display of God's creative abilities as we do in nature. And what it should do is have us look up and just worship. I remember going through Yellowstone and I was just amazed at some of the things I saw. When we saw the Grand Prismatic Spring, if you don't know what that is, it's the hot geysers and springs that bring up water out of the ground and they lay down sediment and they're rainbow colors all over the ground. And I look at that and I say, Wow, God, that is so beautiful what you have created right there. I can't, I can't look at that and say that came about by chance. But many don't see it that way. Many choose to believe in the fairy tale of evolution and the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show The Scientific Fact, which really takes more faith to believe in than simply saying God did it, doesn't it? If you really look, look at evolution and the fact that we as as creatures on this planet would have had to wander around for millions of years without eyes until some reason we grew an eye, and then we figured out that, well, maybe two eyes would be better, so we had uh, depth perception, and so we, then we grew... I mean, when you start just thinking about that, it's, it's even more fantastic than the biggest science fiction story. The reason why people want to deny God's existence is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 118, when he said that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now listen to this. Since what, has, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is that someday when you and I stand before God, we can't use the excuse that you never heard about him. 
You can't use the excuse that an atheist would try to throw at us that says, well, what about the aborigines over there in, in Australia that may have never heard about Jesus? Are they going to hell? No, they have the creation to point them to God. They have simply to look around them and see, wow, this has to have come from some divine being. And God will reveal himself to them. But the fact that God is eternally self-existent or simply exists should be very clear to everyone. And how much money do we waste every year trying to educate a child out of the notion that God exists in this country? The schools are doing this right now. Most children, even before, most children before they are indoctrinated out of having a knowledge of God seem to automatically know and understand his existence. I can tell you from helping out in children's church, I don't have to explain to a child there's a God. They simply accept it. They simply have that, that childlike wonder of the world and say, this has to be, this can't have just happened through random chance. That has to be a God that, do, that made all this. A child simply intuitively understands this. Now, what is the meaning of Elohim being eternally self-existent? And why is it important? Why it's important is that God exists before existence. I know that's kind of a, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. He existed before this existence that we currently know. He existed before creation itself. He existed before time. He existed before matter. He existed before energy or light. God was still there. Since God has, is eternally existent, he has always been. In fact, the whole idea of time itself is part of his creation. It is not just a byproduct of it. It is an actual created part of his existence, or his creation. God in heaven exists outside of the timeline as we know it. And I can't really explain it to you any further than that. But I know that time is a created concept and it is something that he created. It is not just simply a consequence of creation, but a created thing within the creation. Einstein re recognized this in his theory of general relativity, that time can be slowed down, it can be sped up, it can be warped, it can be twisted, and all these kind of things. And if it, something can be adjusted and stopped and slowed down and everything else, that makes it part of creation, doesn't it? And that makes Elohim greater than even time. And the third point about Elohim being self-existent comes down to the meaning of Elohim. El, the El God being plural. And that is the other members of the Trinity have also always existed. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all part of this Godhead, Elohim, and all part of the created process. Here in Genesis, in a few um, verses after verse 1 there, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So we see God's Holy Spirit. Colossians tells us that about Jesus that everything was created by him and for him. All three members of the triune Elohim were there as part of creation. And we see this also in the creation of man. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us... Make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, is that a singular use of the pronoun or the plural use? 
plural use. So who is he talking to? He's not talking to the angels. Angels aren't created in the image of God. So he had to be talking to other members of the Godhead. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit existed as a triune or three-part being, so they created another triune being in humans. When God formed man out of the dust of the ground, he formed a creature that was pulled and created from the very earth in order for it to be able to interact with the very earth. The Spirit, when it says that the God breathed within man the breath of life, the, the Hebrew word is nephesh, and he breathed within him this very breath and very spirit of God that exists within every human. And that's what gives humans the mental acuity and the spiritual sensitivity that is unique only in humans on this earth. And without that spirit, mankind is just another animal. It says in Job 32.8, But it is a spirit within a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. So we see that God gave us part of himself, our higher reasoning abilities, as part of the creative process. The third thing that God gave us that makes us a triune being also is the soul. The soul is the seat of the emotions, the will, the self-determination. It's the meeting place of a spirit and a body. And that's how God created us in his image. And when you really break down Elohim in Genesis chapter 1, you see the basis of our understanding of who God is. And the final thing I want us to consider about Elohim today is that he is creator. Remember the principle we started with. The Bible doesn't go and try to prove that God created. It doesn't try to give all the scientific formulas that he used. It simply states that he did. And if you consider for a moment, just consider for a moment, the untold trillions and trillions and trillions of natural laws that have to be in existence right now for the universe to work. Ones that we haven't even discovered yet. Elohim put those into place. Think about the motion of the galaxies. The complex interaction of gravitation. Think about the precise interaction of a hydrogen molecule within a star that has to come together and form fusion for the star to burn. The gravitational forces that exist between objects. The distance of this moon from the earth to influence tides to keep the oceans alive. The fact that atoms are surrounded by electrons. Electrons that give out a negative charge, by the way. Anybody ever have kitchen magnets? And as a kid, you have the, you remember those round little kitchen magnets that go on the kitchen and some of them came with clips, you could hang stuff on there. And you tried to stick the two magnets together and sometimes they'd stick and then other magnets they wouldn't, depending on which side of the magnet that the manufacturer put it on. Well, sometimes you, you try to push them together and they're like this and they wouldn't come together. I don't know if you ever played with stuff like that. I did. Well, atoms are like that too. They have the same... Um, they're surrounded by electron shells, all of which are negative charged. And if you have two negative charges or two positive charges come together, they repel each other. Yet atoms, for some reason, stick together. They're not really sure quite why. They say, well, the protons interact and all this. I'm not going to get into a science lecture here because I don't understand it that well myself. But all I know is that the very pew that you're sitting in this morning and supporting you is made up of these electrons that should be flying apart 
and yet they are held together by some force that is not well understood. I just call it God. Now consider all these things just for a moment. Consider those trillion, trillion, trillion natural laws that God had to consider before he said, let there be light. And it should just blow your mind. And the second point about Elohim being a creator is that he is also a judge over what is in line and out of line with his creation. Elohim designed his creation and natural laws to operate within a very specific framework, his framework. Creation, and especially humanity, was never designed or intended to operate apart from him. And the reason we have so much chaos within our culture, and even within our world, geographically, storms, tsunamis, earthquakes, all these kind of things is because of humanity's stubborn resistance of of not allowing God to be part of his own creation. Mankind was put here to tend the creation, not run the creation. And the reason, that's the reason we have all this chaos is because we say we can do it better than God. Let me put it like this. How many people drove here today? Just about everybody, right? I'm probably the only person that walked because I'm only four houses away. When you got into your car this morning, there was way back at some point an engineer that decided to engineer a new car. And so the engineer sat down in his blueprints and he made out this engine. And he said, they looked over it, other engineers looked at it, they approved it, sent it for production. Now let's say the first 100 cars start rolling off the assembly line, they go to start it, it doesn't start. Doesn't start. Now, the owners of the company are a little worried So do they go over here to the guy who tightened bolt 5C on the engine block and yell at him? Do they look at the guy who upholstered the seats and say, hey, how come that engine ain't working? No, they go back to the engineer because the engineer is a person who's going to be able to judge most accurately what is wrong with that car, right? It's the same thing with God. It's his design. This creation is his design. Therefore, he is the ultimate authority and the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong with his creation. And that gives him the right to judge. He has the right and even the responsibility to declare what is in his design and outside of his design. Amen? Now, Elohim has within his design for us incredible blessings. Incredible blessings. He has given us love. He's given us food, as you can see here. He's given us family. He's given us relationships. However, all those have to be enjoyed within Elohim's original design. Otherwise, it brings a curse and not the blessing that he intended. So what does this mean for you and I? Tammy, if you want to come back up. Maybe some people here have wandered from Elohim's design. You know what the law of God is. These laws are just principles that he put in his design to make sure everybody is protected, to make sure everyone can enjoy his creation the way that he intended. Maybe you've jumped over that fence, though, that he erected to keep you within the boundaries of that design. 
and you ran towards something that looked wonderful and beautiful, but once you got there, you found out it was a mirage. And you're in and now in a dry place. And you're stuck in a desert of regret and shame. Elohim wants you to come back. He's merciful and he will accept you back if you just turn to him. And you turn away from your sin, that mirage that you ran after. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your wandering away and through accepting him as Lord and Savior, that penalty for turning away from God disappears in a sea of forgetfulness. Hallelujah. Washed away by the love of God.